You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and I'm joined today by State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District, Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me on. So we heard from President Biden a little over a month ago that OSHA would be promulgating a rule requiring large employers to either mandate weekly testing or vaccination for their employees. And about a week and a half ago, OSHA did, in fact, release that rule. And now some states are fighting back. Um, As you've said before, Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel are not planning to fight this mandate at all um, as they support these types of actions. So on Wednesday, the state legislature acted by trying to fight the mandate. And they filed an amicus brief in opposition to uh, the rule in a case that Kentucky filed against OSHA. Uh, And for our listeners, amicus briefs, um, amicus is Latin for friend or amicus curi, friend of the court. Um, So these briefs are meant to supplement what's filed by the petitioners and respondents in a uh, case uh, and highlight potential consequences of a decision or, or perhaps restate or reframe these arguments. Um, Michigan says it's an undue burden on the legislature, and particularly Michigan OSHA, the state's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as it's regulating these workplace rules. A big point that it brings out is that COVID-19, they they write, is not a uniquely work-related hazard. The spread of COVID-19 is a health issue, and therefore OSHA is exceeding its authority because the rule that's promulgated, quote, regulates a public health safety matter, trying to curb the spread of COVID-19 both in and outside the workplace, And then the other main point they bring up is federalism, that this is within the state police power, the brief says, not the federal government's power. So talk to us a little bit about what you think about all of this and and how you see this going down, the the issues of the OSHA rule coming out now. I think those are both good arguments. I would probably start at an even more fundamental level, though. Well, the federalism issue is, is probably similarly fundamental, but where does the government get its powers? In the United States, the government gets its powers from the Constitution. And the Constitution under the Ninth and Tenth Amendment expressly says that the powers not uh, given to the federal government in, that, in the Constitution are reserved by the states and the people. And uh, so I think you have to look at it, at the the problem of of who can't you know if if even if this is a legitimate government power, meaning there's not just an inherent right uh, held by a citizen to prevent a rule like this, who can issue the rule or who can make the, the decision is a question that the Biden administration doesn't seem to have even taken very seriously. So the federalism point would be that if some kind of a requirement like this were going to be imposed on employers then it would have to be imposed by a state. And certainly it's true that that under our Constitution and our traditions from the time of the founding, the states have retained what's referred to as the general police powers to regulate the health, safety, morals, and welfare of the people. And so it's, it's, it's definitely true that, that a state would have a much stronger case for making a, a rule about uh, inoculation or just any kind of health-related matter uh, than the federal government does because there's they have the, the general background police powers and, and the federal government only has the powers delegated to it. But setting that to the side for the moment, uh, within the federal government, it's, it's obviously clear that Congress would have a much stronger role uh, or much stronger case to, to be made that it has some kind of authority here uh, than the executive would. And that's that's so that's related to the sec, to the I guess, to the first argument that you brought up about whether this this falls within OSHA's purview itself. 
I would question whether it does, but I would also question whether it could. In other words, can Congress delegate this broad of a legislative power, even if Congress holds it, which I doubt, right? I don't, I don't think that Congress does under, under Article 1 of the Constitution have, have the power to issue this kind of rule. But even if it did, uh, that doesn't mean that it could give it to the executive uh, and and so you have this this problem of of who could make this rule at the federal level clearly being Congress I think and and the Supreme Court dealt with a similar not not a, it doesn't seem like a similar issue on its face but a similar delegation issue um, with the uh, the CDC eviction moratorium I mean obviously no one really thinks that the the Center for Disease Control has the power to impact landlord tenant law I don't remember whether you and I've talked about that Josh we probably did at some point but mm. You know, the Supreme Court dealt with that issue pretty handily simply by saying maybe, you know, what maybe Congress could make this rule, but it didn't. And it certainly didn't give the CDC the authority right. to, to intervene into landlord tenant uh, issues. And OSHA, you know, it has a certain kind of authority delegated from Congress um, and how, how, you know, whether that's good and whether it's constitutional generally is, is, is those are deeper questions than whether this is good and whether this is constitutional. And I think it's it's obviously not because. Uh, it's just not the kind of it's not the kind of thing that OSHA is imagined to be empowered to do by Congress. So the, it's a, it's a multi-layered problem, but I think that the the rule by the Biden administration fails on all of these scores. Yeah. So talking about OSHA issues here in the state, um, because we said it falls under state uh, police purview. Um, Michigan OSHA has been making rules regarding how businesses should handle COVID nineteen. Um, and in response to that, the state legislature passed a bill that would have um, given businesses a potential for one strike before facing fines and other civil penalties. Uh, it's House Bill 4501. Um, if the business had taken action to remedy the situation, then they wouldn't be fined um, after um, the OSHA had, had decided to find them. Uh, so this bill got several Democrat votes in the House, and it passed the Senate. But in the end, just over the weekend, the governor vetoed this bill. Um, what are what are your thoughts on that? Uh, this is a bill introduced by my friend Timmy Beeson, who represents Bay City in Bay County, and uh, it's it's worth remarking that Timmy's the first. I think he's the first Republican in over forty five years to represent that area, and it that speaks to the depth of community that he, you know, the, how deep he is into that community and how, how well respected he is. He owns a, um, a little grocery store or meat store, uh, and is a fourth generation business owner in that town. And this, this is just, uh, actually, I, I don't mean to plug my podcast here. I have a podcast with one of my colleagues called Drew World Order. We're both named Andrew. That's the joke. Um, and Timmy is, is the guest on this week's episode. So if you look look that up, you can hear more from Timmy himself, and you'll understand why this bill, uh, 4501, is the it, he's the perfect sponsor of this bill because he runs a small business and he can articulate and you know he can really explain how the one size fits all policies that the Whitburn administration is addicted to. Um, hurt small businesses in a way that it can never hurt a big business. I mean, there's no level of complexity of regulation that Amazon, uh, Facebook, or even General Motors can't grapple with. You know, they can hire another lawyer, they can hire another accountant, they can hire another expert, they can hire another economist. Uh, but Beeson's Market in Bay City uh, or, you know, any of the businesses you want to think of in our area in Hillsdale or Branch Counties, you know, these guys can't keep up with uh, the extremely onerous regulations that are put on them. And so what this bill would do 
is simply say that if a business is in violation of a COVID-19 order, which, you know, definitionally is a is a brand new regulation, right? It's not something that these people grew right. up, you know, being used to, like washing your hands or something, right? So if a business is in violation of a, of a COVID-19 uh, related uh, order from OSHA, uh, then they they essentially and and they correct whatever their their alleged violation is. Then they can't be fined for the first violation. Um, certainly makes all the sense in the world. And if our governor had any compassion for the working people of our state, she would have signed this bill. It's and the bill is by the way. I what I just said is nearly all the text of the bill. Oh yeah, very right? short, very it's short. Like two two full paragraphs. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the issue here is that our governor is just disconnected from what it's like to actually live life, um, you know, out in the community. And she, I think, has never shown any compassion or even uh, intellectual understanding of what it's like to have to comply with um, the sometimes seemingly random but al- always um, uh, top down and again one size fits all orders that her administration has issued through OSHA through DHHS and through her own pen so it's not a surprise it is a disappointment and it speaks to why she's as bad of a governor as she is you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM we have Representative Andrew Fink and this issue to me it, it reminds me I'm in a Federalist Papers class at the moment and it reminds me of Federalist 62 where um, at, towards the end, Madison's writing about how if the law, if there's so many laws that nobody can keep track yeah. of them, it's going to be very destructive. I mean, he says, what farmer or manufacturer will lay himself out for the encouragement given to any particular cultivation when he can have no assurance that his preparatory labors and advances will not render him a victim to an inconstant government? And, and it seems like that's exactly what this bill was trying to remedy, is that businesses, if you don't know the rules... OSHA, Michigan OSHA comes and says, ah, you're violating the rules. And the business owner says, oh, crap, I didn't realize this. I'm going to now go remedy this. Um, they wouldn't they wouldn't be fined uh, because of that. that. That is exactly right. Madison, of course, wrote that before even the invention of bureaucracy. Right. I mean, <laughs> right, 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 right. So he's writing this w- without really even being aware of what the administrative state might become in the 19th century in, in Europe, especially and in the 20th century in the United States. Uh, and I guess all of the developed world. And uh, that's exactly the problem. Uh, You expect people to take risks in order to bring dynamism to the economy so that we can grow and prosper. And that, you know, that is basically the the benefit that we receive from the free enterprise system. The the reason we have a free, the the primary reason we should have a system of free enterprise in our economy is because it treats human beings like human beings and uh, and gives people the right to take risks and uh, and you know, engage and trade with their neighbors uh, as free and equal citizens. But the the benefit that we get from that is that by treating people as they are, by treating people according to their nature, they thrive and they prosper, and they bring that uh, that you know prosperity to their neighbors through uh, through their interactions with one another. So it's it, that that's why I mean that's why it's so bad, and that's why it's been, had a negative effect on on the economy and the and most of the counter that you'll get from people who support the you know, the, the Whitmer approach or the Biden approach to these things is, is that there's cash out in the economy or whatever, as though inflation were a good thing. So that is, I mean, Madison said it better than, than I'm going to say it, uh, uh, today. If, if the people can't know the law, then it's, I mean, it really, it's hard to even call it a law because 
it can't really regulate our behavior if we don't know about it. And it, it's not that it has to be kept secret, but if you make it if you make it as numerous, if you make the laws as numerous as they are, the regulations as numerous as they are, no citizen can ever keep up. Again, unless maybe you are one of these supremely huge businesses that can employ literally thousands right. of people in your compliance and HR and uh, and legal departments. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We have Representative Andrew Fink here. Uh, since last time, the governor has also vetoed Senate Bills 687 and 688, the Student Opportunity Scholarship Account Bills. In her veto letter, she said that the bills would try to privatize education and says that previous attempts, quote, have been catastrophic failures, causing Michigan students to fall behind the rest of the nation. She notes that the state has the largest proportion of for-profit charter schools per student, but since 2003, reading scores in the state have declined which is only the case in four other states nationwide. That's true in the aggregates, but of course it doesn't tell us anything about charter schools because that's statewide numbers. When it comes to actual performance of charter schools, even in 2019, Detroit charter schools outperformed their Detroit public school counterparts, though they still were below state average, as the entire Detroit system is. Those numbers are important for the school choice debate, but these bills actually weren't about charter schools. They would give people in households with income 200% the maximum for free or reduced lunch prices, which is a little different than our normal metrics of a certain percentage of the poverty line or whatnot. So this depends on how many people are in your family like the poverty line. For this, it would be about $98,000 per family of four. So these are available to those families as well as children who are disabled or foster children even if they don't fall under that income range. And it would give every eligible child in public school up to $500 to use on educational expenses, which the bill has lots of different categories here, but that would include tutoring, books, extracurriculars, computers, athletic activities, and many other things. Students outside public schools would receive up to 90% of their per student, per student allowance statewide to use for tuition to a non-public school or online program. Uh, if they if they wanted to be outside the public school system. And again, that's about a little over $7,000 with our current amounts. Very contentious bills. Uh, you didn't even have total Republican support in the House, but you did vote for the bill. Tell us a little bit about that and why you think that this bill was very important and what you think about the governor's veto. Yeah, well, I, I don't, I, I guess... What Governor Whitmer announced her veto, I mean, she—I think she announced the veto before we had even voted on the bill in both chambers of the legislature. I mean, in other words, she was dead set against uh, this or or really any meaningful innovation in education that isn't fully endorsed by the teachers' unions. So I—I uh, didn't really think a whole lot about what she had to say about it, except that it, again, it shows her callousness towards the working people of our state that she's not interested in giving families flexibility. Um, in supplementing their education. I mean, this is, it's really not enough money uh, to, to pay private school tuition. You know, it's not enough money uh, probably to, to really revolutionize um, uh, a child's education, which, you know, I, I, I'm, I am, I think it's, it's a tragedy when any child is not, does not have the resources or a family doesn't have the resources to get a child the best education for that child. But this would make that problem better on the margins, and uh, and I, you know I'm aware that there are there that there's pushback. I mean, there's pushback in our community from people involved in the public schools, uh, but at, at the end of the day, the reason I supported these things is because I think it gives families more flexibility in meeting the educational needs of a given child. Every child is different. Every child needs uh, his or her own you know, education to fit that child's uh, personality and abilities, um, ambitions, uh, all of that, and. 
And so putting some uh, control back into the parents' hands, uh, uh, I, I just I see that as all upside. Um, I mean, what, here's here, just one small uh, version of, of how this these accounts could have could have been used. You know, there are there are kids whose families would like them to take uh, to to be involved in um, school based activities over the summer, but there's no transportation for them. So uh, a family could use this money simply for transportation for that student, mm-hmm. uh, um, or as you say, it could be used for extracurriculars. I mean, maybe in in a given school district. Um, say an ancient language isn't offered, but there's a tutor available, or a uh, given instrument isn't offered. I mean, these are things that everyone should acknowledge are uh, are good pieces of a of a strong education. Um, but uh, you know, a, a public school district might or might not have that available. This would empower the family to attain that you know extra piece of a child's education. Um, and uh, so that I mean, that's that's the basic reason I support it. And again, Governor Whitmer's comments aren't really that interesting because. Uh, she never really considered the issue. All right, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We've got Representative Andrew Fink. Uh, got only a few more minutes, but uh, we talked about the Knife Rights Act uh, last week, um, and we've talked about it before that because you sponsored it as the first bill you introduced here in the legislature, um, and there was some speculation, you know, but, uh, of course, now we know what ended up happening. The governor did end up vetoing the bill. Um, her veto letter, uh, she she laid out, uh, crime is local, she writes. And so citizens of Michigan cities and towns, not Lansing politicians, should be able to make their own public safety decisions. And this bill would deprive them of that power. Um, reading that, I think it's it's interesting that um, the, the locality should not be making their own public health decisions. Um, but anyway, she, she goes on to write, you know, she wants Michiganders to feel safe going to work, dropping kids off at school and running errands. And so, you know, this should be a local issue. Um, and uh, believes that it's a, a distraction. Uh, what, what did you think of the governor's letter? It's laughable. I mean, the the idea that, first of all, that the governor, uh, you already undermined her, her argument about localism, and, and you and I have probably talked in the context of another couple of bills that, you know, the question of local control of, of a given topic is a prudential question, and, and uh, the exact nature of the activity that you're talking about controls whether it, you know, makes sense to be a local decision or a statewide decision. And there are examples where I, I fully support an issue being retained at the local level, but here's one where a citizen could look up what the state law is. By the way, if she thinks that like our children aren't safe uh, without more restrictive knife ordinances than state law, uh, why isn't she pushing for uh, more restrictive state law? I mean, it's not like the children are safe in one place and unsafe in another place because of a local knife ordinance. It's really ridiculous. And so the way the way, the way things now will continue to stand because she vetoed the Knife Rights Act is that a, a citizen could look up what the state law on carrying a knife is and then wind up violating it without ever knowing it because no one in, in our state is... Uh, insane enough to look up, you know, dozens of cities' laws about whatever activity it is they want to en- engage in, um, especially when it is not—it's not obviously a local issue. I mean, if you want—if you want to build something, yeah, you're going to look at the the city's, you know, zoning ordinance and and uh, uh, construction rules. But if you want to walk around the state with a knife in your pocket, you're probably not going to look up every city's rules. So, um, I. Th- I think it's a ridiculous justification for it. I think that uh, it will continue to put people at risk of being made criminals for activity that the state has deemed to be totally innocent. Um, 
And I don't, I, I really don't think that even she believes that it affects the quality of life of the people of our state in any positive way to have inconsistent knife rules in different cities. So that's, that's what I think about her veto. Yeah, when this seems to go back again to the issue of citizens just not being able to know what the law is, um, it, it makes more sense if you're you're thinking about just people who are living in their own communities, not leaving their communities. Okay, I can know what Hillsdale's knife rules are, but going over to Coldwater or, or even up to Jonesville, if the city of Jonesville decides to have their own knife rules. It's it, it seems like it's nice if for the governor with her staff of lawyers and staffers to, to tell her what the, the laws are. But for the rest of us, it, it seems next impossible to be law-abiding citizens. And on an issue like this, you might also point out her armed security. I mean, she's not the one who has to who who has to consider whether, you know, carrying a knife for her work or for her personal safety or whatever. Like she doesn't have mm-hmm. a reason to care about this issue. And so she doesn't. All right, well, you've been listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We've had Representative Andrew Fink on today. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Josh.